we have to get creative, right? Like, and no matter what space we're in, 90% of our problems can be fixed with a nap and a snack. I think there's something that's just really beautiful in the simplicity of not overcomplicating fate, not overcomplicating needs. Is there always more we could do? Absolutely. But that's with anything. That's with any social program. That's with any faith tradition. That's anything. There's always more we can do. Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Polly Reese. Fam, I am delighted to bring you today Tori Mick. Tori is an old dear friend and she serves as a director of religious education for the U.S. Army. A quick content warning off the top. We do talk a lot about trauma and moral injury in the context of their use in the U.S. military and the impacts of COVID on the lives of enlisted people. So as always, if these things are not right for you to listen to, feel free to switch this one off and catch us in the next one. Tori talks about her work supporting the chaplains of the U.S. Army, the intricacy of supporting soldiers of many spiritualities and faith traditions, and how trauma and moral injury impacts the spiritual care of enlisted people. It was such a privilege to catch up with Tori and learn more about the work that she does in looking after the service people of the U.S. Army. Please enjoy my chat to Tori. But we met when both of us were both much more Christian than, than, than we are now. But working as uh, a, as participants in a Christian show choir, yes, called the Continental Singers. So it was a touring group of right. teens and adults who um, put on a show. It had skips. It had music. Um, right. And basically, yeah, we we would put on this show every night. We would travel. Um, and the idea was that uh, we would be able to talk about faith through music yeah. and through skits and, and things of that nature. And don't quote me, but I think that the Latin Continental still exists. There was a COVID virtual choir video released. Oh, interesting. I could go on reminiscing forever. <laughs> as much as we could and shout out to shout out to founder cam floria uh, the and then the the the, the chief art, artistic producer at the time i believe it was dean butler yeah um thank you both for uh the experiences that you that you created i do want to move us forward into to more of this phenomenal like fascinating life that you live in a position that i didn't know existed you have one of the most fascinating current careers that i could imagine yes so my technical title is a director of religious education um for the u.s yeah. army but yes kind of nutty kind of crazy i've been to seminary my uh-huh. 
exposure to religious life in the U.S. Army was a couple of days when the the chaplain recruiters would come by those those very cute like handsome chiseled looking boys they would come in bring really nice pizza they would have this conversation about how the the army needs chaplains or or it would be any other of the armed services which is which is true that 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 this this role is needed and i'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about what the day-to-day of the director of religious education for the U.S. Army is is like. So I am one of several. Um, I happen to be one of the directors of religious education at Fort Leavenworth here in yeah. Kansas. Um, and so, but there are, I think right now there are 55 of us, 56 of us who do this around the world. Sure. So we have sure. uh, what we call CONUS or Continental United States. And then we have OCONUS, which is the overseas folks who do this. So they're in Europe, et cetera. Sure. Um, so, but what, how I kind of describe it to people, because it is, it's kind of, most people don't know it exists um, unless they're on a military installation in a chapel. Yep. And, yep. Um, and, Directors of religious education, we we acronym everything. So we're DREs. DREs uh, are an army construct. And so you will only see them at army locations, except if you sure. have a joint base where two branches have joined. So joint base San Antonio, where I was last serving, is one of those places. So it has an army <laughs> location and two Air Force locations. And so... Um, you will see them if there is an army location that's attached in the joint basing. So we have like joint base Lewis McCord, which is in Washington, joint sure. base um, Langley Eustis, which is in Virginia. So you will see DREs there, but largely we're only on army installations. And so what we do is we work with the chaplains to protect the Title Ten right to religious freedom for the soldiers and their families who are in our care. And so what that looks like for me as a DRE is the chaplains, right? They're, they're typically doing worship services. They may be counseling They're Um, they do all of the same, the same kinds of roles and hold all the same kinds of roles that like a pastor of a church would hold. Um, But they also do have other responsibilities to the army that aren't just that piece. Um, I, as a DRE, I'm not active duty. So I'm a civilian and who is hired on as a subject matter expert in curriculums in religions. And Mm. so I come in and I work alongside what we call the garrison chaplain. So we have, um, we have garrisons all over. That's, that's our location, basically, like on post. And so the garrison chaplain is, would be the equivalent of like the senior pastor. Yeah. So I work alongside the garrison chaplain to make sure that we are providing for all of the programs, um, any type of religious program that we need to provide for. So it mm. could be, hey, we have a Protestant women's Bible study that needs they need a room, they need curriculum, they need 
guidance. They need all those things. Um, or we have a cat like men's study, or maybe we have a Wiccan group that wants to meet and, and do yeah. something educationally. And so yeah. I am the person who curates those resources um, because the army, while there is a separation of church and state, um, and that is a very serious thing. So like you will never hear um, an army church be called a church. They're called a chapel. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because if they're a church, they violate the separation of church and state. Um, they are not run the same as a church. The funding looks drastically different. Um, even the way the funding operates is drastically different. And mm -hmm. uh, but like one of our big things, because we're in a pluralistic environment, we have all these yes. different faith groups all the time. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, the biggest thing is you cannot denigrate another faith group. So it's yeah. built on mutual respect of faith and the and the understanding that your Title Ten right to religious freedom is is a protection of your religious freedom or yeah. for your religious freedom. So I come from a military family. Uh, both of my right. parents shout out to the Air Force. Both of my parents are career mm -hmm. Air Force, um, and. Military installations are miniature cities within mm -hmm. their their locations. So they have chapels. They have the commissary, which is where you get your groceries. They've got, if you're on an Air Force base, it's the BX. If it's the Army, it's the PX. But it's basically like your version of Walmart, where you can get mm. clothes, you can get makeup, you can get, you know, basic household things. Um, yeah. There's a gas station. There is there are child care centers. There are all of these different things um, yeah. because people live on on post or on base, et cetera. And so, um, but yeah, I think that's one of those places that people just kind of expect. Oh, with with the separation of church and state, you know, they would just look at you and go, "Hey, go good luck, go find a place." You know, and yeah. the reality is that some of the some of, even some of the army locations and whatnot are so far away from the rest of civilization that um, yes, and the rec there's also a recognition on the army's part that the families that we serve one percent of Americans have served in the military. Sure. And so it's it's a subculture that a lot of people don't know a lot about or they have their opinions about it from whatever news platform they choose to watch. Sure. Um, sure. Or they have opinions about it because of their own experiences. And so, but the Army recognizes that they're can be a spiritual component to resiliency to their mission um it's not something that's forced it's it's obviously something that the army simply says hey we recognize that this might be beneficial to you being a soldier in the army and yeah. so we want to provide the resource if you want it and there are plenty of families, like at my location at Fort Leavenworth, um, there are plenty of families who choose to 
to come to chapel on post because they're around other military families. And there's this camaraderie with that, that when Mm. you're a family who's military and you walk into a church off post who maybe doesn't see a lot of military families, they don't know what to do with that. They don't know how to support you when you have a spouse who deploys or when your kids are having trouble with the reintegration of your spouse when they come back from deployment, things like that. So, yeah. There's, there's a couple of things that you've touched on that I, that I, I think are just that are, that are resonating for me. One, uh, the, the tiny little town in the middle of central Pennsylvania, where, where I was raised, there was, there, there was a very small base. It was called, uh, letter Kenny. Yeah. Letter Kenny, um, army depot in, in yeah. And, and, and it was even the tiny little town where I grew up, that one was a town of 350 people and they had three faith communities. How do you ask an active duty officer? on potentially the the one day if it's the full day that they have off i i don't know how how shifts work to to drive 10 miles to have to have a formative faith experience exactly as you say when it it may not provide any actual need that they have number one uh and and that that community may be ill-equipped to to give them whatever spiritual need to help with their spiritual needs number two this 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 notion of community is so important i think i think especially as we're seeing as we're seeing spiritual communities emerge from lockdowns and and trying to find the secret sauce to get people to come back to in-person gatherings i i think we're realizing that people really need need community and the social aspect of having of an affinity group like like a spiritual community cannot be underestimated. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. When you think about these these misconceptions, or or frankly, just ignorances, what else do civilians, uninitiated, uninformed civilians, need to know about military life in general? And I'll I'll prompt by saying one of the things that you told me as we were beginning, and we were half joking about about the seizure of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, which was in the news at the time when we did the pre-interview, but but then broadened it to talk generally about government and military life in general is that a lot of a lot of those sorts of things that we think of as the uninformed that we think of are very secret and very sexy. Uh, and and must be very intriguing are actually just lots of really really boring things. Yes, <laughs> that is very true. Um, so things like, in fact, I'm sitting in an in an office, right? That yeah. ha- that like has brown walls. Like, right? There's nothing there. You know, there's not a lot of color. Everything's brown or camo or <laughs> you know, and that's just like a funny like quirky. So I always try like anything that I put out um, to people, whether it's like marketing stuff or whatever, I try to jazz it up with color because there's just, there's not, there's not color to it. But, um, you know, so for me, one of the areas, so my specialty is youth ministry. um, And that's where, that's when I got my master's in shout out to Memphis Theological Seminary. Um, And 
I am super passionate about teenagers, specifically third culture kids, which are kids who have um, grown up. Typically, they're going to be military kids, diplomats, kids, um, or kids of business people who have grown up outside of the the culture which they were born in and outside of their parents' culture. And so it creates this third culture dynamic. Um, and so, but with that comes its own set of challenges. Um, I myself am a third culture kid and what that means is that people look at my life. I have moved 18 times. Um, people look at my life and they go, or they look even at my resume and they go, yeah, what's wrong with her? Why has she not stayed in one place long? Why, you know, what happened that you, like, what bad thing happened that you've moved that many times? Right. Um, you know, and they automatically go to, like, something really horrible. Um, and that's not the case at all. I happen to be a gypsy in every sense of I love the nomadic kind of lifestyle I Uh, love being able to pick up and go. I love um, the opportunity to experience new foods, new cultures, new people. It doesn't mean that it's easy by any means because it's not. But um, I think that I am better at what I do and and I'm a better just human being by all of the world experiences that I have been afforded and really that the Air Force, some of it was when I was a child and my parents were in the Air Force, like the Air Force afforded me those opportunities. Um, But on the flip side, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because there's also this sense. So when I was growing up and, and my parents were, were active duty um, resi- the word resiliency kind of became the, the, like the buzzword, like it was the new thing. It was the, it was the big yeah. initiative. Yeah. And so it was, yeah. you know, everybody, the military uh-huh. kids are resilient. Um, and yes, that is true. We are resilient. Um, it's also the word that I hate the most in reference to teenagers um, and in reference to children, because we've morphed as culture does, we've morphed from our military kids are really resilient, yay, and like cheering them on to our expectation is that you will be resilient, just deal. And there are times like even me, having moved 18 times, having lived the military life, there are times where I am not resilient. There are just not. And, you know, like there are times where I miss my friends and I miss pieces of wherever I call home. And I miss, you know, different things that come with living away from my family and living away from you know, what I know, maybe it's cultural, like Bucky's, right? Like, I don't have Bucky's up here. Yeah. There are yeah. times where I do miss Bucky's. So I'm like, man, it would just be really nice if I could get some beaver nuggets. Um, And so, you know, I think 
the mindset with that has to be that, um, you know, going back to your question about like, what are things that civilians should know, you know, that every military family is different. Every military family has their own set of challenges. Um, it's a really bad assumption to assume that the person who's in the military is a man. Please don't. Um, because mm-hmm. there are tons of military families that the wife is serving um, and not the husband, which is awesome. And, uh. um, but, you know, they largely live just like, you know, just like you do. They, yeah. they have the same, the same issues that go along with being a, an adult human in this world. Um, and sometimes those issues are, Hey, I've got a single parent for six months because my spouse deployed. Or sometimes it's, you know, Hey, there's issues with my housing right now. I can't find housing. I've got to live in the hotel for a while. Like, you know, I, I don't have a permanent address yet. Like all of those things. Um, and so, you know, I think, but there, there's this sense of sacrifice with it. Um, like, you know what you've signed up for when when you enter that lifestyle, if you will. Um, maybe not to its fullest extent, yeah. but but you understand um, what, what you are signing up for. And, uh, yeah. and so I would just say, you know, yeah, if you do see a service member, um, you know, thank them, ask them about where home is, ask them about their life. They would love to tell you, especially I know, you know, you see service members in the airport all the time, right? Because they're flying sure. to, yeah. to wherever. So, um, but yeah. don't be afraid to, t- don't be afraid to talk to them and ask them about, Hey, what's it like? Because they have fascinating jobs too. Um, you know, they, they do, they get to do really cool things. When my parents were in, um, my parents worked the space shuttle launches, uh, in California. That was, they were security forces and that's what they did. Um, that was, that was the, a large part of what they did, like in their early careers, which I think is so cool. Like, yeah, I mean, it just, you know, so they do, they give, and, and most of them, for me as as a military kid like i want people to know me in that way i want yeah. people to know that hey i've lived in a bunch of different places or to Bad. be invited on thanksgiving because you find out that i'm not going home wherever home is you know or um you know yeah i mean i don't know yeah. it just it's such a that's such a big question. Yeah. Because there's so many things. But yes, you are not wrong in that um most things that are top secret, not sexy at all. Not even <laughs> like y'all, like no. Uh but it is worth saying for for the radio edit that we did seek clearance from your base supervisor to be able to have this conversation. We did. Um, so we did, we did follow the right channels. So, so, so that is in place. Uh, and, and that disclaimer, <laughs> I, 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 I prom, I promise NSA that disclaimer will be in all of, all of the, 
all, all, all of the, the audio and the YouTube and et cetera. And I don't speak for the army. Exactly. Um, all, both of both of our opinions are, are <laughs> our own, our, our own opinion. Um, big disclaimer. If you're like me, you love it when it's easy and uncomplicated to put good out into the world. And nothing helps you do those things more than a strong cup of coffee. Enter today's sponsor, BVP Coffee. BVP Coffee Company provides single origin coffee and unique blends from all around the world, all produced right here in Philadelphia. Their latest coffee, 1867, is an ode to the rich and illustrious legacies of Howard University and Morehouse College. BVP Coffee donates a dollar from each bag sold to support business students attending historically black colleges and universities. I tried it and loved it and makes a great iced coffee. BVP Coffee has a special offer for Uncommon Good listeners. Right now, you can go to their website, bvp.coffee, and save 10% on your order by using the code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout. You can even use this code for recurring coffee subscriptions, so you're always saving 10% and never missing a day of delicious coffee. When you use our code, you're supporting coffee farmers, HBCU students, BVP Coffee, and the podcast. That's code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout at bvp.coffee. Now back to the program. So does, is, is Leavenworth starting, starting to feel like home? You know, it depends. It depends on the day. There yeah. are, the Midwest is different, right? Like, it's, yes. um, you know, I come from the land, I come from the South. I come from San Antonio and Baton Rouge. And right. I come from um, football and tailgating and tacos. Right. And um, I mean, football's different here. Uh, although I will say people are very uh, big fans of the Chiefs, so sure. uh-huh. fair enough. Just not college ball, which is okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not a Chiefs fan, so I just kind of don't tell that to people. Um, <laughs> but you know, the the other piece that I, I think is particularly fascinating, and the one reason why I happen to have heard the the name of the talent at all is what you described as Leavenworth is also home to military jail. Yes. So Leavenworth is home to the largest maximum security military prison in the United States. How do you look after the religious well-being of of an of a person who's not even incarcerated in state, municipal, federal pen, but military pen? So I partner with them. Um, we uh, have chaplains who are assigned to, we call it the DB, the discipline barracks. Um, and so we have chaplains who are assigned to the DB, to the jail. Um, and we have more than one jail on Leavenworth. And, um, so some, you know, because not everybody is in maximum security for the rest of their life. Some are here for minor, more minor offenses. And so are only here for a couple of years. Um, sure. But yeah, so I, we're in what we call directorates. And so um, my directorate actually differs like here at the, at the local chapel differs from the DB's directorate, but 
we recognize that, hey, like there's not a there's not a DRE assigned to the jail. Um, sure. It, it's very locked down, right? Like you have to you have to have all these passes and and clearances and checks. And and so with that, um, I partner with the chaplains there when they need support, because we we have a bunch of very smart chaplains as well. Um, yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, when they but who are potentially overtasked, et cetera, have a lot to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. for instance, I worked a project um, not too long ago. One of the chaplains came to me and said, hey, um, our literature library, so where they keep all of their kind of religious materials, our literature ri- library is really like we just we need to revamp it. We need to add some new things. Um, we've got some sure. funding. We want to we want to do that. We have at the time 14 faith groups represented and we um, need to like we need to add resources for each of the faith groups. Can you create yeah. a list for us? And so that was I spent about a month and a half working, working on creating a list of good resources that met all the criteria that didn't denigrate other faith groups that, you know, and, and doing all of those things. Um, and then passing it along to the chaplains for, you know, hey, when when you guys have money and you want to purchase these, or if um, if a somebody who is currently being held in the DB requests, you know, is is I don't know whatever faith group they are, maybe they're LDS, sure, and and they sure. need resources, then they've got a list because not because chaplains in the military are still one particular faith group. Um, So each of the chaplains have to have an endorser. And so they're endorsed by that. For instance, the Catholic priests are endorsed by the Archdiocese of Military Services. Um, And with an endorser, the endorser says, you can only, as it would be on outside of a military installation, you can only, you know, perform these rites and rituals at this time. And you can do, these are, this is what you can do as a pastor, basically. And so, um, but our chaplains have to function in a pluralistic context right? that they don't necessarily know all the time. Like they do get schooling and things for it, but like we have hundreds of approved faith groups that we can support. And so is it fair to ask a chaplain to also support or to also know the ins and outs, the holy books, the traditions, the uh-huh. rituals of hundreds uh-huh. of faith groups. <laughs> no, that's complicated. And they yes. would still be studying. Like they would never actually be chaplains. They would just be yep. continually studying. Um, yeah. And so that's where I as a DRE get to come in because I get to be the person who deep dives for them and finds them what they need um, and kind of partners with them in that. That's such a pragmatic solution to such a complicated problem. Well, and so the Army views my position and any DRE position actually as an educator. Um, Mm -hmm. So we're not listed as clergy. We are educators um because it involves that practicum that curriculum that research those those pieces um and i like to think of myself as 
as yes, an educator, but also like the out of the box problem solver. Mm. Right. Because um, the military has a very unique set of needs. So I'll use my yes. previous location. So I was at Joint Base San Antonio during COVID. Um, and if wow. you don't know anything about Joint Base San Antonio, I was at Lackland, which is where basic military training for the Air Force and the Space Force happens. Um, sure. And if you know anything sure. about basic training, you know that you are basically in like with this group of people for the seven and a half, eight weeks that you are in basic training, you eat, sleep, and breathe together, basically, for sure. the for your entire eight weeks. And um it's but what we ran into was with COVID, everything locked down. Yeah. We had all of these, I'm gonna say kids, um, all these trainees who were coming yeah. in from all over the United States, all over the world, really, to come and and be a part of basic training. And sure. they were potentially bringing COVID with them. This was before vaccination. This was before anything. And so they had to start looking at, yeah. do we need to quarantine them? Do we need... And so there were these processes put into place, right? So yeah. one of the things that would happen when they would identify COVID, that they would get quarantined. But then you had these trainees who were sitting in a room by themselves, who were 18, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, sitting in Jesus. a room by themselves for 14 days by themselves and with no real interaction with another human. Um, I believe if I remember correctly, they got their phones, um, which, cause you don't normally have your phone. So they at least had that right. connection like to the outside world. Right. Um, but if you have ever been a human who has not had contact with another human for a couple of days, um, things go south very quickly, specifically with your mental health. And so all of a sudden, we had this unintentional kind of mental health issue coming up that yeah. our chaplains, because our chaplains um, were counseling. Right. And yeah. so they were counseling yeah. Yeah. all these trainees and everything was, I'm lonely, I'm homesick, which homesickness is a very normal counseling trend for, um, for basic training, but it turned sure. into, this is more than just loneliness. This is starting to develop into depression. This is starting to develop into anxiety. This is potentially starting to develop into suicidal ideation. And so we had to sit down as a chaplain for as a as a team and say, yeah. okay, what can we do in in because we provide support, right? Like we're we're not in charge there, but we we do provide spiritual support. What can we do to provide support to help mitigate yeah. mental yeah. health crises? Because we already know like in America the mental health crisis is larger anyways. But what do right. we do to help mitigate that mental health crises when they're here? Um, and so one of the ways that we became kind of out of the box with it was um, we started anytime we'd find out that there were trainees who were quarantined, we would say, hey, do you subscribe to a, a particular faith? 
um if you it like if they would contact a chaplain because a lot of times they would contact a chaplain just to talk to somebody um because uh big big thing that people don't know or a lot of people don't know chaplains in the military have 100 percent confidentiality they're the only people yep. so yes when, when you talk to a chaplain a chaplain cannot say anything um they cannot be taken to court to testify um about like it is 100 percent confidential so a lot of times they would you know they wanted to talk to a chaplain and and so if they if they called a chaplain the chaplain would would ask hey do you subscribe to a specific faith group because chaplains don't counsel in their specific faith group all of the time sometimes uh, be, uh. because of need right like sometimes um a, a trainee if you don't request a specific faith um you know you might get a, a chaplain of a different faith and yeah. that's part of the pluralistic context and and the chaplains sure. shout out to the lackland team the chaplains were very equipped to handle um handle those things but wow. yeah so they would ask and if they came back and they you know whatever the faith tradition was if they had a faith tradition um they'd then come to me and say okay let's let's get them a packet and we would basically create like these packets of resources um of of things for them of devotionals yeah. of um in in whatever faith uh, maybe daily prayers, maybe um, liturgies, whatever it was. But we would we would try to create something for them um, that allowed them to practice their faith when they couldn't because they were quarantined, no. um, but also allowed them to potentially experience their God. Um, in the midst of this suffering and this isolation because we were all going through it right um you know and so that was but yeah so part of my responsibility was just coming up with these out of the box like even when we started to open things back up um yeah we couldn't open them back up where they had previously been because we had um we had like room restrictions, right? So we could only have half the people that we would normally see. So then it was, okay, now we got to find twice the space. Where do we find twice the space? We can't just build a building. Um, that's not how that works. <laughs> no. You know, so, so wow. yeah, um, a lot of, a lot of what I do, one of the things that I love about what I do is that I get to bring that to the table. I get to be that out of the box person who says, yeah. hey, maybe maybe let's try it this way. We recognized that the tech trainees um, were walking back and forth to class every day because they don't, they don't typically have vehicles at that point. So they're walking back and forth to class every day. And, but what, what do we do when we drive or we walk back and forth? A lot of times we listen to podcasts. That's our thing. And so recognizing what are the generational trends what are what is this generation into and then building off of that yeah. to provide religious support um and getting outside the box with it you know and trying different things and being okay to say hey this didn't work um we we ended up doing 
building out just discussion questions for a couple of different podcasts for different faith groups. Sure. And and had somebody from those faith groups uh, and a soldier from those faith groups who facilitated those questions. Um, and so they could and they and it was something that they could do in their dorms. So they would listen to the podcast. The podcast, you know, was generally 30 minutes to an hour. They'd listen to it through the course of the week. And then, you know, whatever night they picked, like they could literally sit across the hall from each other while they were social distancing but also have a discussion about the podcast yeah. that they were listening to. So, Wow. What an elegant solution to, once again, a very complicated problem. Just, wow. We have to get creative, right? Like, and no matter what space we're in, I don't think that our problems are so complicated that they can't be. Like, we were talking, we actually started talking a little bit before we press record, um, 90% of our problems can be fixed with a nap and a snack. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and that's a really, you know, that's a really very small view of the 5,000 feet view. But I think there's something that's just really beautiful in the simplicity of yeah. not overcomplicating faith, not overcomplicating needs. Is there always more we could do? Absolutely. Yeah. But that's with anything that's with any social program that's with any faith tradition that's anything there's always more we can do yeah and so it's my hope you know that the families that i serve and and the population that i serve like that they come to the table knowing that they're loved that they're cared for and we're doing the best that we can to serve them in the ways that they need um but that we're also seeing them yeah and seeing them for who they are, that they can come to the table and be 100% authentically who they are in whatever that looks like and whatever that mess is. Um, I'm not the norm for a, an army DRE, if you will, because I tend to color a little bit more outside the lines. That's my, that's my passion, my, my love, my, you know, I no, I don't like a briefing slide that's white with with black text like never will you find me super excited to create that kind of briefing slide um you will find if you were in my office you would find i collect religious kitsch toys yeah and so i collect uh, from any faith and so i have like a buddy jesus piggy bank that's like it's jesus like this and i have um hope soap which has it's yeah i mean it's just a little bar of soap that has i think it's pope john paul's face on it and i have um you know a sign that says inhale tacos exhale negativity like i have all of these things all over my office because that's who i am that's yeah, my that. personality and i want people you know when they encounter me to realize like yes i do i work for the united states army i work for the united states government um, I am passionate about that. I am passionate about the opportunity that I have to serve my country in that capacity. Yeah. Um, but, but what that doesn't mean either is that I have to, I, that I can't come to the table being 100% authentically myself yeah. because I won't do well 
if I can't come to the table and be authentically myself? I mean, who does, really? I'm thinking about all of this language of like being ourselves and being authentic. And now with COVID, how how we've adapted, we've changed. One of the things that as you were talking that I was realizing is both of us are, are religious professionals. We've been um, engaged in in working in church like all of our lives. Both of us have been to seminary, but neither of us I, are are ordained in any particular tradition as a clergy person. But I suspect I suspect the answer to this question is a problem that a lot of clergy people deal with as well. I'm thinking about the the work that that we do as religious professionals, and and we also have personal spiritualities as well. I wonder, as you have been in a position where you see very much how the sausage is made, helping other people have meaningful experiences of faith and spirituality, religion even, do you feel like that has impacted your personal spirituality? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I grew up in a largely... Um, conservative evangelical context. Sure, me too. I, um, yeah, that um, I grew up United Methodist, and I happened to to go to a United Methodist church that was more conservative, um, still leans more conservative. Sure. Um, and I, you know, did my undergrad and served for a number of years, and then went to seminary um, after serving in the church for a couple of years. Going to seminary was amazing and life-changing. Um, I think it's one of those things, like, if you are a Christ follower, I think that you should go to seminary or just audit a seminary class because they're fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And, and because you encounter, that's really a place where you encounter people who differ, like, truly differ in belief. Um, because you come from mm. different contexts. Mm. I had that. I was serving in a town uh, that it was a rural farm town. Um, shout out okay. to Fulton, Kentucky. They're the home of the Banana Festival. Look it up. It's great. Um, but yeah, I was serving in this rural farm town and it, I was completely out of my element. I moved to go to seminary from Dallas, Texas, one of the largest cities in the United States, to Fulton, Kentucky. Um, There were 1,300 people in Walmart. And when I got there, not only was it culture shock, um, there is one stoplight in the town. There is is poverty. There is um, lots of families who uh, live under the poverty line are on some sort of social assistance, things of that nature. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I I had come face to face with the reality of America in a way that I hadn't, you know, you talked about a little bit like when we toured on Continentals about how you'd see the other the other side of things, the other side of how we grew up. And that was really the first time for me that I slammed into that in a way that um, 
it engulfed my life. Yes. Uh, there there wasn't a way for me to read more about it, to to get away from it, to like I was living in the midst of largely rural poverty. Yeah. Not all of it is rural poverty. So but largely in the midst of that. Um it was heartbreaking, but incredibly beautiful. And one of the things that I would say still continues to shape uh, my faith and shape my walk, because I had, I was a youth pastor there um, and I had kids who I I had decided because, because I was like, okay, the, the youth ministry can be built on love and grace. Like I firmly believe that any organization can be built on love and grace. That was the way that I strove to partner with God, um, if you will, to create a youth ministry um, and create humans, like help be a part of the creation of humans that were good people, were good yeah. citizens, yeah. were, were, aware of what was going on in the world yeah but also didn't look at their circumstances and say i can't get out of this i can't change my life and that's not that that can sometimes happen with poverty Um, because you talk about a lot about poverty can be a cycle uh, um and and my big thing was like i had several kids who were farmers um and I didn't know a farmer. I had never yeah. met a farmer <laughs> in my life. I mean, uh, I, you know, uh, like it just, it wasn't part of my upbringing. Right. Like, yeah. so, you know, but, but I had farm kids. I, I will never forget this. I had a, a kid, uh, instead of doing highs and lows, which is a typical kind of youth group, like, Hey, what's your high for the week? What's your low for the week? Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. My yeah. question was always, where did you feel like you saw God? And where did you feel like God was absent? And then we would pray about those things. And um, I distinctly remember one night at youth group, he said, we need to pray for rain. And I was like, why? Like it rains all the time, like whatever. And he was like, no, Tori, like it it doesn't. And if we don't pray for rain, the crops won't grow. And my family won't be able to feed people. Seventh grade, seventh grade. And I went, oh my gosh. And he just like that just completely blew my mind because never had I thought that a seventh grader, number one, but also that this kid who grew up in this rural town would internalize the responsibility that he felt like he and his family had to feed people because they're so passionate about so stinking passionate about it, about farming, about agriculture. Um, life-changing for me. Yeah. Because I went, number one, heck yeah, teenagers can do all the things. But also, number two, that's a very basic, simple pringer. That's a simple, and yet... His faith in that moment was so powerful. It was, I believe that God will provide rain, but we do have to pray for it. Yeah. 
So yeah, I would <laughs> I would say, um, you know, it continues to affect. I having grown up in this more conservative and then moving towards um, something that looks a little less conservative as I've studied as I've, um, you know, yeah, just done deep dives on on different subjects, mm-hmm. but also in the context of of what I do is my responsibility to learn about these other faiths. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also my responsibility. The army, because of the separation of church and state, cannot ask me about my faith and they cannot hire me based on my faith. Man. And so faith is not something it's, it's this funny kind of conundrum because personal faith is not something that I talk about at work because they, they can't decide that because of my personal faith, I can't serve a faith group that's not my own because of the separation of church and state. And so it's something that I recognize it's this really unique kind of place to be in that, yeah, in the interview process, they can't ask me. They can't ask me. And so um, there is a piece of that that is really freeing as a female who has been in ministry yeah. um, because there are spaces where I am not allowed um, as a female. I'm yeah. not allowed to serve as clergy. I yeah. am not allowed to serve, you know, I'm told shut up in color. <laughs> um, you can't be a worship leader. You can't be any of these things. And that's a really hard place for me to be. Yeah. Um, and it's not something that I agree with, but there are, there are places that that would not hire me because I'm female would not hire me because I'm not married. Yeah. Um, and so I am seen as half of a person and not a whole person Yeah. because I don't have a spouse. Um, and so, yeah. And, and those are the places where the army is like, yeah, we don't care. You can't ask about that, <laughs> you know? And so that's a really, to me, a beautiful thing. Um, because I think so often in church, it's taken on a, a bigger part and context than it really should. And it's taken on more importance than it really should. Mm. Um, so people stop looking at what are the gifts and, and graces that you bring to the table and start looking at what are the ways that you can't fulfill your call that we don't feel like based on our perceptions that you can't fulfill your call. Well, as you said, there's so much just love and grace in that because there's an element of dogma that is removed when the sect specific components of religious practice are, are no longer a barrier, which I just find fascinating because Yes, you're absolutely right. There are there are many places where your identity markers make you ineligible for ministry and not just in, in Christian traditions. And that, that same thing could be said of so many different identity markers that, that are held by so many people. I wonder in those moments that get very difficult, get that get tiring, fatiguing, exasperating, what are the what are the the little graces that help keep spirits high when when morale is low and time and times are tough so music has always been a really big part of my life yeah um and we actually went out the chapel that i work in 
um, has the sanctuary area for that chapel has a Steinway. Oh. And Steinway piano. Yeah, oh. and it's beautiful. And it's been well taken care of. Um, oh. And so a lot of times for me, um, if things have gotten really complicated, I will I will go down and just play the piano for, you know, take a break, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just a, a brain break. Um, I also make a point uh, every day. It is, it is rare that you will find me eating at my desk, um, eating lunch at my desk, because I like to have the brain break. And so I will, <laughs> you know, work, work, work but then brain break and I will find a different, even if I bring my lunch, I'll sit in a classroom I, and I read a book. I love reading. Um, I love learning. Right now I'm reading um, the letters from Ignatius of Antioch to the church. Yes. Um, oh. So mm. because one of the, one of the groups that I'm currently serving is the Catholic population here at Fort yeah. Leavenworth. Um, yeah. And so, and of course we're in, we're in the deep throes of sacramental prep for a lot of our folks. And so um, that is, while that is not my faith tradition, um, that is something that it's important for me to know more about. And so I actually went to the priest. Um, we have a phenomenal priest right now. And I said, hey, if I wanted to start, because I have a good working no- knowledge of Catholicism. Right. But I said, if I really wanted to like deep dive as if, I were potentially going to convert to Catholicism, if you will. Where would you have me start? Like, what would be the text that you would read? And he and he said, Ignatius of Antioch, start there. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. okay. So I jumped on Amazon and got a, got the letters of Ignatius of Antioch and, and have started. And so, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but I think there's also... I think it's really important that there's balance, right? So at the end of the day, yes, we work with people. Yes, we work in a faith setting, um, but we are still very human and we still need rest. We still need time away. We still need all of the basic things that come with being a human. And this is still a job. And I think when we get to a place where we make our professions the entirety of our identity we lose ourselves Better. we lose our ability to be a hundred percent authentic and so that's something that i am really particular about is you know making room for what are the things that i like to do on my days off um setting those boundaries of hey if you call me on my day off um, you're going to have to, you're absolutely going to have to leave me a voicemail and I might listen to it. I might wait until, you know, my next day. Yeah. Um, but, but trying to create those boundaries, even though I don't have a family in the traditional sense, right? Like I have a dog. Um, my, my parents and my brother do not live anywhere near me. Um, but so I take time to reconnect with them. Maybe it's phone calls or it's FaceTimes to friends or it's it's things of those nature um, or just things that I love. I went, there's, I've got a good friend from college who lives near here. She was like, hey, there's this big sunflower field that has millions of sunflowers every year. 
and they're they only exist for like two to three weeks sunflowers are the kansas state flower let's go and i was like okay let's go to the sunflower fields you know so finding finding those those little ways to kind of feed myself if you will do things that i love um do things that i'm passionate about outside of anything that goes on at the office because it can't be it can't be my identity yeah um if it becomes the whole of my identity i will lose myself That's so incredibly well said. I'm thinking. I'm thinking of veterans and and the the world that you've described, where being a soldier is the entirety of an enlisted person's experience, and how we, as the religious professionals, how we can be a part of helping that sort of acclimation to to civilian life yeah um so um this this leads it a little bit into our into my final question and i suspect might be might be one way that you answer it but but the 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 final question that gets asked everybody is what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it i want to have been the person that somebody else needed. I want to have been the person that I needed when I was that age. I want to have been that person for somebody else. Um, that somebody who encountered me laughed or felt like it was okay to be authentically themselves or, um, you know, fell in love with whatever. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of a cliche Christian term, if you will. But like at the end, I just, I want to be told well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah. And whatever that looks like, um, you know, my passions are with marginalized people groups, marginalized faith groups. Um, that doesn't always put me in great places with people. Um, That's not some of those those places and spaces are not welcome or welcoming. Um, and there's a lot of unknown with that. You know, there's a lot of people who, who look at what I do or look at my passions in those things and go, number one, how did you get there? But number two, why would you ever, you know, why would you, why would you ever support something that looks so drastically different from how you grew up or what you, what you knew and um and so for me it's just beauty can be found in anything yeah but i think it's our responsibility to remind people that there is beauty around them even if it's just the daisy popping out of the cement on your on your walk to work or you know, you're walking down the sidewalk to get a, a sandwich or whatever. Um, yeah, you know, I want people to, I want people to feel like they have a stronger faith. Um, that the world isn't, that the world isn't always on fire. 
I think it will always feel like a fun fire. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, there are places where things are not on fire. And, um, and yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, when I'm done with it, I hope, I hope that I leave people better than I found them. And I hope that I leave these faith groups that I encounter better than I found them, not necessarily by my own doing, but just by being a person willing to stand next to them, to be an ally, to, to fight for their ability to worship, to uh, have education and to, you know, learn in their faith tradition. What is one small thing a person like me as a sieve can do to, to at least be more mindful of what sorts of spiritual needs our, our service people have and, and how, how we can at least be if not, if, if we can't necessarily help in meaningful ways, how we can at least be more informed about what is needed or, 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 or not cause more harm. Yeah. Um, honestly, community, right? Like community is such a big part of how a military family, um, and single soldiers, um, how they move through the world. They're in a community at work of people who um, they call, in the Army, they call them battle buddies. In the Air Force, they call them their wingman. Um, but, you know, they're battle buddy. They're people who they do life with, the people who would take a bullet for them. Um, be willing to, to be that person be willing to be not that not that you will be a battle buddy in in its true sense of but you know be willing to be in community with with somebody who looks different yeah. maybe somebody who doesn't subscribe to your faith context um and and let it be okay like we don't we don't have to agree. I don't have to agree with your faith tradition to support your faith tradition, to support your right to worship freely, to support your right to have incense at your service. Um, but I, but I can make a difference in making sure that your faith tradition is advocated for in the spaces where I am sitting at the table. And so, yeah, things that are interfaith are, are a great way in my mind are a great, um, a great conversation starter Yeah, because most communities, most large communities in a city have some sort of interfaith, something that goes on. Lots of colleges have interfaith things that go on. Yeah. Um, largely we insulate ourselves right like we protect ourselves we um look for people who are similar 
And so I think it's this constant striving of, you know, while it would be really normal for me to gravitate towards maybe one group or one person, um, maybe looking for the people who are on the margins, who who are different, just and just having a conversation. Like I said, like it's it doesn't have to be political. It's not something that you have to you don't have to agree on anything. Uh, but even just the willingness to sit down and listen, because at the end of the day, I think so many people just want to be heard and known, right? Like, yeah, just heard and known. And so what would it look like as faith leaders, if we could be the people who allow others to be heard and known Yeah. And spaces where maybe they've never been heard or known before. Maybe their families, they've never been heard or known. Tori, thank you so much for, for being on the show, for lingering and sharing with us all of this incredible grace and wisdom and, and laughter. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate getting the opportunity to tell, give, tell people a little bit more about what we do and about the difference that that we get to make. My thanks to my guest, Tori Mick. You can follow her on Instagram at Tori Mick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded ancestral land of the Lenape Nation who remain here in the era of the fourth crow and fight for official recognition by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to this very day. You can find out more about the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania and how you can support the revitalization of their culture by going to lenape-nation.org. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkins. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed captioned video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.